That sounds like a good trade up. Well, let's open up a prayer and anybody who joins us can join us. So, what we need to I'll ask Sarah. Yeah. Computer's working really slow here this morning. I'm not sure what's going on. All right. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for the health to be here. We pray that you watch over all those who couldn't be here because they're zonked or sick or exhausted from move or, or what have you. And we pray that you bless this morning, bless our interactions with one another, and bless our interactions with your word. Help us to give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Good morning. All right, so we're working our way through the Renaissance, and, uh, <coughs> sorry, as it's appropriate, because I am sick, we're going to talk about the plague, and I think that's appropriate, because you can't, you can't get past this point in history without stopping and talking about how much death is going on at this point in history. I mean, I, I, you, hate to, you hate to stop and say, hey, let's, let's really focus on negative stuff, but this is a profound period of people dying, unlike any time prior to this. You know, when everybody talked about the plague, I'm sure they talked about this one, but when you went through the first one, yeah. a number of years ago, I'm thinking, oh, that's the plague. Yeah. No. I know there's two of them. Yeah, that was Justinian's plague, and that was bad. This is much worse. Um, it, but it, it's it's much worse, but in a, in a different sort of way, so we'll just, we'll see how this goes. <clears throat> but because it's not just the plague, it's a whole bunch of different things. Now, we talked about, and I'm going to pick up where we picked up, where we left off last time. The 1330s, the Mongols have raided Central Asia, they've conquered everything, and they've slaughtered everybody. So, there had been a period of, of drought for several years, and the population had dropped between the, the Mongols and the drought, and then there's a bunch of rain, and so you have a lot of crops in the field who are, is not being harvested, so you get a whole bunch of rats eating the unharvested grain growing very, very populous, and then needing a place to go. And so you got millions of rats moving into what's left of the cities and bringing with them the Black Death, right? And that's where we left off. Now what's interesting is, I want you to remember this, this basic cycle of periods of drought, extended periods of drought, followed by flooding, rats eating the field stuff, bringing plague. Because we're going to see this 200 years from now in the Americas. The exact same cycle of things. We've got the Black Death coming. In 1334, it reached China. And when we think of the plague, when we think of the Black Death, and I'm not going to show you any pictures. I've been looking at pictures of this all week. You don't need to see any pictures. That's That one painting is all I'm going to show you about. Um, it's not fun. But when we think of the Black Death, when we think of that 14th century plague, we tend to think of Europe. But the first major place it hit was China. Sorry. Oh, uh, so you, you, but you tend to, but the first place it hit was was China, and it hit it really, really hard. Twenty-five million people died in thirteen years in China, and to try to put that into perspective, that was seventy percent of the population at the time. Seven out of ten people in China died in the span of thirteen years. Megan actually helped give me another statistic to try to help you understand how immense this would be. Not only is it 70% of the Chinese population dead in a little over a decade, it is the combined current population of the top 10 most populated cities in the United States. It's as if New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Philadelphia, Phoenix, San Antonio, San Diego, Dallas, and San Jose were all wiped out by plague. That's just China. That's just China. That's pretty potent. That's terrifying, right? Now, you're sitting in Europe. What do you think when you hear about this? It'll never come here. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it'll never come here. Boy, it's I mean, when you, think of, when you think of people being beheaded over there in, in the Middle East, you go, oh, that's <laughs> rough. You may even say that's, that's horrific. Ebola won't come here. Ebola won't come here. It's not like you're going to have people beheaded in Oklahoma. I mean, it's not going to happen, right? That happened this week. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, or it's also the perfect time to attack. Yeah, exactly. That's the other way of looking at it, I suppose. So, in, in Europe, I mean, they look over at this, they say, yeah, that's rough. 
But we've got other things going on. This is the same year that Pope John the 22nd that we've been talking about in the last couple weeks, he died in Avignon because where's the Pope? He's in France, right? The, the head of the church in Rome hasn't been in Rome for quite some time. In fact, everything involving Rome is German now because the German emperor is in charge of Rome and the Roman popes are French and they're over in Avignon because it's it's the it's the Renaissance and everything's different than the way you would have, you would think it was supposed to be. So you got the Pope dying in Avignon and being succeeded by Pope Benedict the Twelfth, who is also French, strangely enough. Jacques Fournier, very very French, but but not particularly patriotic. Remember the last couple of Avignon popes we've had have sucked up to the French king something fierce. You know, we'll do anything you want. This guy doesn't really care about that. He's not a particularly uh, political kind of guy. In fact, he felt no allegiance to Philip VI, the new king over in France. It's like, whatever, I could care less what's going on with you. He actually even tried to make peace with the Roman Emperor, Ludwig, that we've been talking about. It's like, yeah, I'm going to extend an olive branch. Let's try to get together. That's fine. That's great. But I'm not going to care that much. Because there is no strong sense of nations yet. It's going to take a hundred years of war before we start having that sense. That will be next week. But this time, there's no sense of nationalism. Everybody's still just a bunch of kingdoms and dukedoms and things. And if you'll notice, you see, if, if this is France and this thing, do you see all these little city-states that are fighting and competing with each other in northern Italy? That's going to be significant in the next couple hundred years. These guys competing with everybody. They're too small to have significant armies and go to war with one another. So all their fighting has to be economic. They're all like, you know, we're the ones in charge of this. Oh, we make the best this. We make the best that. We have the best artist, but we have the best sculptor. We've got the best painter. We've got an awesome inventor. Oh, you know. Everybody's trying to outdo one another over there. But that is going to create, as any kind of war, whether it's a physical war or an economic war, it's going to create a great deal of advancement which is part of why we talk about Renaissance, because you're going to see a lot of intellectual, artistic advancement. Most of it is being drawn by people going, well, I want to stick it to the Johnsons. You know, sorry. Because <laughs> the Johnsons are down the street, and they've got, they've got a riding lawnmower. So we have a robotic riding lawnmower. Really, we have genetically engineered grass that doesn't need a lawnmower. We've got, you know, anyway. But France and England don't really exist as nations yet. They're just holdings by particular kings. This is England. <coughs> is that the mental picture of England that you have? Can you even wrap your head around it? Would that work good on a flag? I mean, does that look like England? When you look at this, you go, this, is, this part of, 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 of Ireland is still free. This part of, of uh, Scotland is trying very hard to be free. You've got bits of England over here, over in France. This is England. It isn't a sense of our island England. That, that doesn't come yet. This is not really going to resonate with some guy working in the fields in Kent. He's just some guy working in the fields in Kent. And if you ask him about England, he'll talk about, yeah, the king holds holdings all over the place. We own large portions of Ireland and large portions of our own island and large chunks of France. I don't know. All I know is I work this field. There's very little sense of Englishness. But if you go to war for a century, you learn stuff about that kind of stuff. Rather than going toward politics like his like his predecessors have done, Benedict was really famous for working through heresy. He's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna root it out, I'm gonna get rid of all this heresy, especially remember we've talked about the Cathars in southern France, the Albigensians? Love killing those guys. That was great. He was really good at that. He wrote extensively in theology. He argued against the Immaculate Conception. Do you remember what the Immaculate Conception is? The Virgin Mary was born without sin. Because how can, how can a sinful woman give birth to God? Therefore, she had to be born without sin. And since Jesus was without sin because he was born of a sinless woman and he was God in the flesh. And Mary was sinless, even though she was born of a sinful woman and was not God. In some ways, that makes Mary even more important than Jesus. 
grandmother too. Same. Yeah, I mean, she's swell, but but she wasn't sinless. Actually, there was a move in, in the late. Most people like she's not sinless. Like it is because you said that you go, well, it was her mom. Well, it was her mom. So, but he wrote, "There's nothing in Scripture to suggest this. This is silly." So I respect him for doing that because it kind of bucked a lot of tradition. He also bucked tradition because he talked about the immediate judgment as soon as, as immediately after death. He's like, "You don't hang out in the in the grave waiting to resurrect." You go straight to the judgment seat, and then to purgatory, or to heaven, or to hell, or wherever you go. You go, man, okay, you're willing to buck a lot of people. You're, there's, this was, he, went, he took a lot of popular theology and said, I, I just don't see that in scripture. I don't see, I don't see that. I'll give him some credit for that. Take some guts. Then again, he also drank so much, so frequently, and so publicly, that the phrase, drunk as a pope, became popular. If you want to talk about somebody being really Falling down drunk, you go <laughs> like the Pope. So I mean, eh, any Pope's got good and bad things, right? Pluses and minuses with your basic Popes. But he wasn't really all that worried about this horrible plague going on an entire world away because he had a hundred years' war to deal with. Before it ever came to Europe, war came to Europe. England owned about a quarter of France, and I got to put those in like quotation marks because again, it's not like the island of England and that country that was recognizable of France. England owned a chunk of France and like the richest quarter, the Aquitaine. It's really nice place with all sorts of vineyards and farmland and nifty stuff. So they own that. They've owned that for a long time, ever since Eleanor of Aquitaine. You remember her from back in the Crusades? Ever since Eleanor of Aquitaine left her husband, the French king, and went and married the English king. Because he apparently rocked. So, it worked out so well for Henry and his sons Richard and John, and I'm not putting the, 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 the lions back up on there. But anyway, so England owns about a quarter of France, and their royal families have been intertwined, is the nicest way of saying it. I mean, it's just they've been crossbreeding, and it's even going to get worse. I mean, at any given time, the, you know, the guy who's the king of Austria is going to be from Spain, and his wife is going to be from England, or what? You know, it's just it's it's going to be incredibly messed up as the centuries go on. But England and France, in particular, have been swapping kings out and queens out right and left for quite some time. So, French King Philip IV, who we talked about last time, dies in 1314, and his crown just naturally passed to his eldest son, who then died. And then passed to the next son, who then died. Then passed to the next son, kind of like, kind of like Judah's sons. You just kind of burn through them kind of quickly. Um, so you got you got dead sons all over the place. And once you get to that youngest dead son, once Charles the Fourth, his youngest son, dies, what do you do? Who gets to be king of France after the youngest son of the last king of France dies? There's a couple of different ways you could look at this. Does it go to the eldest daughter? Isabel, it's her right, right? Now she's currently married to the English king, Edward II. Pardon me? I said Jesus. <laughs> no, 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 no. This guy's clearly, clearly Anglo Saxon. <laughs> like most of them are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't look like this. Um, but that's what the old Salic law says, the, of, the, of the Salian Franks, the ones who gave France its name, the Franks, right? So under Salic law, it went to the eldest surviving daughter then, which would make Edward king of England and king of France. And all this turns red, right? Woohoo! Sounds like a good plan. That's a great plan. Or should it go to the nearest male blood relative, Philip? That's what had become the common practice in Europe. So who does it go to? Let's fight. Let's fight. Yeah. Actually, the French said, "I'd like a French king." You know, wacky, For crazy. Some For some reason, the French said, "I want a French king." So they went with Philip, and tensions ensued because the English said, "Oh, come on, France belongs to England now, doesn't it?" And France said, uh, "No." So what do you do with this? Now you go into the fighting things. Scotland allies itself with France because why wouldn't they? <laughs> right. They don't like England. They've been fighting against England for independence since Edward's father's time. You remember Edward I, Longshanks? The guy that you 
An assassin wakes him up in the middle of the night and poisons him, stabs him in his sleep with a poison blade, and Longshank still kills the guy and survives? Yeah, this guy's tough. They've been fighting for independence. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like when, um, when uh, in, in the Civil War in the United States, do you remember who came and helped the Confederacy? Why they, they, they lasted as long as they did? Who gave them, who gave them ships and things? England. Because England's like, why would I like you? Anything I can do to destabilize the Americas, I'm fine with it. So the Confederacy said, we'd really like, I mean, all the industry is up north. We've, we've got all the textiles and, and all the people who were trained at West Point. They've got all the weapons. Could we buy some guns? And so England said, Enfields. And so the, the Confederacy was equipped with British weapons all over the place. Yeah, that's what you do. If you're fighting for your independence, you look at the people who hate your opponent and you go, my brother, we're, we're together here, right? So, so uh, Scotland says, we love France. France is great. How can we help? And Flanders, which is right over there, decides to ally itself with England. Because for centuries, they've had this textile trade back and forth. They're like, uh, we make stuff really good, but we make it with British stuff. The British give us raw materials, we make stuff, and then we give it back to England. And we have this great trade going. We love England. If one of you is going down, we kind of prefer it to be France. We wouldn't mind if all this turned red. That would make everything a lot easier for us. So this is the beginnings of kind of a world war. It's one of the first world wars, if you think of it that way. It's just Western Europe. But Philip said, I'm going to take back that Aquitaine. I'm going to say, by golly, I'm asserting French sovereignty. It isn't going to be red anymore. It's all blue. Blue state. That's what we want. So, Edward III, Edward's son, Edward III said, I'm now I'm taking it back with troops. I've owned it by law, but if you're going to declare it's French now, I'm going to send troops down there. And again, can, do, do, do you see the brinksmanship like, do, that we see nowadays with things? I'm going to move into the Crimea. No, you're not. No, I'm not actually over there. Yes, I think you are. They're speaking Russian. Well, everybody over there speaks Russian. Plus, they asked us to come in. I thought you said you weren't there. Shut up. You know, it's just, that's what's going on, right? That same thing that we see in Vietnam, that same thing that we see in Korea, the same thing that we see now in the Crimea and the Ukraine, that's what's going on over here in the Aquitaine, right? Everybody jockeying for position. They're not technically at war, but it's getting ugly over there. In 1340, Edward III sent his son, Edward, because apparently that's what you do in England. You just keep, Edward has a son named Edward, who has a son named Edward, who has a son named Edward. They call him the Black Prince. He always wore black armor. He had a black shield. The Black Prince. That especially resounded with the French. For centuries after this, they referred to him as Edward, Black Prince of Wales. And they would shudder when they did that. He sent Edward to France to press his claim, and he won this huge battle at Crecy taking Calais, that section right there, the one closest to England. So if you're ever going to invade the continent from England, you will automatically do it at Calais, right? Certainly wouldn't find it like Normandy. That would be silly. So you'd go to Calais. He held this, they held this, for the next 116 years. This was crucial. This was huge. And so they automatically had a landing. I mean, it's just... They, they might as well just have built a land bridge between the two of them so they could march troops over. Philip had sent his troops in early, too early. He wasn't really ready. And the British longbows had just picked him off from range. No matter how far away they were, these French guys came with their crossbows and were like, I get within 50 feet of you, you're dead. The longbows are like, I get within 500 yards of you, you're dead. The French lost 4,000 men in one day. The British lost 300. Huge, resounding defeat. For centuries, the French were afraid of this. So, a century later, when Henry V invades France, the French king says, this is a guy that came from the same line that gave us Edward, Black Prince of Wales. We need to be really, really careful. And so he did the exact opposite and held his troops back and built them up, which, as it turns out, was also a wrong plan. More of that in 100 years. The next 116 years, England and France 
or a war. So it's technically 116 years war, but that doesn't trip off the tongue quite as well. It's 100 years war. They lost more than half their populations as a result of that. We're talking a cacophony of death in the 14th century. Everybody's dying right and left. This is huge. Not quite yet, but once you get into the bubonic plague, oh, absolutely. And by the way, 1347, the plague hit Constantinople. Yes, once you get into the, into the plague, that's when everybody, well, if you remember, people were talking about it, it's got to be in the last days when it's just Indians plague. That was a thousand years ago. And they're like, this is obviously revelation. I mean, this is clearly, I mean, this lines up, this lines up, this lines up. This is clearly the last times. And then when they did the thousand year turnover, because you know, all the calendars flipped and they were afraid that the, the new calendars wouldn't work because they're turning to quadruple digits. From the, yeah. Triple digit? Oh, how do we do four? I don't know. Once they did the thousand-year turnover, people were like, well, clearly, after a millennium after Christ, this is the last time. This is clearly, this lines up, this lines up, this lines up. Clearly, this is the last days. Once you get to this bubonic plague, oh, yeah, you've got several popes going, clearly, this is Revelation. Clearly, we are in the last days. Right? What's interesting is, after the plague, more or less, is over, once you get to some really, really, really bad popes like Rodrigo Borgia, you have a bunch of Protestants jumping up going, clearly this is the last days. <laughs> because forget your plagues. I mean, this is the Antichrist. Blah, 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 blah. Clearly, clearly, clearly. Yeah. Nowadays, when people say clearly we're in the last days, yeah, maybe. A lot of things line up. I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't doubt it. And every day we live, it's a day closer to Christ's return. It could be tomorrow. I've just studied enough history to go, yeah, well, we'll see. Why don't you live like it probably is? But don't get disappointed if it ain't, because over the years, a lot of people have said that. But 1347, plague reaches Constantinople. Not a good thing for, for Europe. Merchants are bringing down the Silk Road. They're bringing all their, their, their wares into uh, to Constantinople from the continent. And it explodes across Europe because especially... Because 12 Genoese galleys leave Constantinople once they realize there's plague there. They're like, we are out of here right now. And they make a beeline to Sicily, taking the plague with them. And so instead of it moving little by little out of Constantinople, it explodes out of Constantinople into Sicily. Those guys spread all their wares out and it explodes out of Sicily toward everybody in, in Europe. Massive, massive amounts of death. Now, I should clarify. Because we've talked about the rats. It's not the rats that bring the plague, right? Technically, it's not the rats that bring bubonic plague. It's the Asian rat fleas on the rats. These guys suck your blood, give you a little bit of their blood that they've sucked from other things, and share the plague with you. It's this whole bodily transmission of fluid things. You, right? So it's the fleas that do it. Thus, it's spread through rugs, cloth, livestock, anything where the fleas say, I like this. This works. You don't actually have to have the rat. Anything where the fleas can hang on to, including the traders themselves. Because in the Renaissance, people are riddled with lice and fleas and all sorts of nasty things. And not just in the Renaissance. I mean, even into uh, the 18th century, you know, how women have these big old, you see them in the movies, the big old white, poofy wigs. And the bigger your wig, the more important you are, thus you are a big wig, right? That's where that comes from. The bigger your wig, the more important you are, which is why the king always got to have the biggest wig. But you have this big wig. How do you make it stick up like that? Hairspray. What do you do? There isn't hairspray yet. What do you, anybody remember? Anybody know how they made their, their wigs stick up? Pardon me? They, they actually did. They would build constructs with that. But they also they used like suet and wax and things like that to keep it there. Can you imagine how many things were living in those? I mean, they actually had mice. Living, I'm not kidding, they had mice living in their wigs. So, oh, oh, yeah. And these things are great. Oh, it's horrible. So anytime you see in these old movies where, I mean, you got a whole bunch of people dancing for several hours in an enclosed room with the big wigs, and women go, I'm swooning. You go, I would so be swooning too. Because it's got to smell horrible in there. Anyway, 
So these guys are carrying the, 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 the fleas with them, right? In fact, the flea was a common theme in Romantic poetry in the Renaissance. You see it all over the place, and especially erotic poetry, because fleas, what, they share your bed with you? There's an exchange of bodily fluids. They probe you with their proboscis. They, they, they suck your fluids out. John Donne wrote a very famous erotic poem called The Flea. And, 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 and there's, one, there's one part of, in the poem where he goes on and on about how she squishes, this, the, the, the flea's lover squishes the flea with her fingers and turning her fingers purple, mixing her blood with his blood and their fluids commingle. Very sexy stuff, right? <laughs> if you're from the Renaissance, it's very sexy stuff. You said they go, fleas, gross. You know, then they're like, fleas. Everybody's got fleas. There's fleas everywhere, right? There's nothing wrong with fleas. Everybody's got fleas. Okay, welcome to the Renaissance. Anyway, the bubonic plague is technically named after the buboes, or those blistered, swollen lymph nodes in the armpits and in the groin, that if you've ever seen any pictures, and don't Google this, it's really it's just an unpleasant week. Um, but it's very, very recognizable uh, when somebody's got the bubonic plague because they get this nasty, big, swollen things all over the place. In fact, bubo itself comes from the Greek word for groin, because that's the first place you get these nasty, swollen, unpleasant things. Really not a good thing. It, 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 it was probably the bubonic plague. We don't know for certain, but it fits all the epidemiology of the bubonic plague. But it wasn't referred to as the Black Death until the 17th century. It was always referred to as the Great Plague, or the Great Death, or the bubonic plague. But it was called the Black Death, not because of any direct symptom, but because you had so much uh, hemorrhaging under your skin as your organs were liquefying, your blood vessels were breaking down, you had because the blisters and things weren't just on the outside, they were on the inside too, all throughout your entire body. There's so much necrosis of tissue that much of your skin would turn black. Only about 90 to 95% of the people that got the plague died from it. Now the reason I say that is there are some people that survived it, but rarely with all their fingers and toes and noses and ears intact, because you lost lots of things because you had such necrosis of tissue that everything is turning black and falling off. Not a nice thing, right? Okay, now this guy, do you notice this guy over there in the corner of that of the little thingy? This is actually a doctor. I don't know if you've ever seen this picture before. This is a doctor, right? Um, they didn't really know what caused the plague, and so they knew it was horribly contagious, but they didn't know what caused it. So they built their own hazmat suits. This is a doctor in a 14th century hazmat suit. And it made total sense to them at the time. You'd wear this hat. It was very recognizable. Nobody else wore hats that looked quite like this. So if they saw this hat, they'd go, oh, that's a doctor. But they wore it really tight to the head, so tight that it almost hurt, because they didn't want the plague getting into the top of your head. Ironically, it worked, because these wouldn't necessarily get there. Um, and, but they used it to keep out what they thought was the bad air. In fact, even into the 18th century, we were still referring to diseases as malaria, bad air that gets into you, malaria. Because um, we didn't really understand exactly the way this worked. They had a bird's mask for two different reasons. Now, that might be the part of it that you look at and go, that's the weird part. <laughs> but it's part fetish, part gas mask. First off, for a time, they thought that the plague was actually being brought by birds. Because you go around the dead bodies, and there are always, dead, there are always birds everywhere. Which makes a certain amount of sense when you think about it. But they assumed it was because of the birds. And so they hoped that if they wore the mask, the disease would think that this was a bird, and it would leave the patient and jump onto the hazmat suit, because it spread from bird to bird. Okay. Wait, Expand your brain. Didn't want to, get it. to the hazmat suit, not to the doctor. Oh. To the hazmat suit. Okay. But do you understand? It, with a limited understanding how this works, do you see why the doctor might think this? If it jumps from bird to bird, and I look like a bird. Maybe it will jump to me, and I can get it to just jump on my suit. Because I'm not going to expose any flesh to it. Makes a certain amount of sense. But that long beak was filled with vinegar and oils and perfumes and anything to keep out the smell of the dead and dying. Because Europe smelled horrible at this stage. And there's just death everywhere. Necrotic tissue 
everywhere. And so the, the, they're like, I don't want that in my mouth. I don't want to be smelling that. So the end of the beak had all sorts of better smelling things in it. Gas mask. It also had eye holes that were covered with red glass because then if your eyes are covered with red glass, the evil eye can't get you. And that might be what the plague is about. It might be bird to bird, or it might be that people are hexing one another. But they can't hex you through red glass. Ask me why. Oh. Shut up. <laughs> this will protect you, okay? That's right, man. So. You yeah. think? Yeah. Doctor's coming down the road. Crap. Yeah. Like, well, especially since you, it either means they're coming for you, which is not good, because you got the plague, or they're coming from somebody who has the plague. You, you don't want to be around these guys. This is going to be a very creepy look. This long black rope, fastened tighter on the neck, and it's actually fast. This picture doesn't do it justice. It's actually fastened around the gloves. Um, was covered with wax or suet so that the disease would stick to it. Because, again, I don't want to get the disease as a doctor. I want it to stick to my robe. And so I get it to come and stick on my robe. So the they didn't think it was fleas. How could it be fleas? Everybody's covered with fleas. Okay, so this is what this is for. Yeah? But if it sticks to the robe, everybody you come, comes in contact to would be... Picking it up off of the rope, right? So no, because it's... To be around. Well, A, that's why nobody wanted to be around. And B, no, because it's stuck to the suet. It can't get off the rope. Again, you don't understand. These guys don't understand how it works. They think, aha, it's like a fly trap. So, ha ha, I've stuck the disease to me. Yes. So we're talking thousands of people. The last thing they saw in this life was that. Was that. <laughs> but, but not touching them. This is why they, they, they carried the stick. So that they could point out what the, they wanted the, the, the family to do. Here, you see that? That is it. So they could be as far away from the disease as possible. And they never touch anything in the house. So I'm pointing with my stick. The worst bedside manner ever. I'm going to come looking like a deranged stork. Yeah, yeah, and I'm going to poke at your pustules with my stick. Not, not a good thing. But again, it makes a certain amount of sense given what they're thinking that they're doing. Now, again, this is spooky stuff. You can understand why people are scared spitless. People are dying in droves. And nobody knows why. And because they don't know why, this is going to lead to all sorts of mistaken impressions as to what we should do to, to, to defeat this. How do you stop an enemy that you don't understand? Yeah, yeah, I wore the bird mask. I don't know what happened. You know, like, I put suit on me. I don't know what happened. Gotta do something. In fact, um, it wasn't uncommon for people um, if they realized that they had just touched something that had been touched by plague or touched a body that had been touched by plague, to take their arm and just like dump it into the, into the nearest fire that they could find and burn it. Because they're thinking, I'd take second, third degree burns over plague any day of the week. And because that worked. Why does that work? Yeah, because it's, it's bodily fluid. So if you happen to get any discharge from the pustules, if you happen to get a flea on you or anything, if you stick your hand in a fire, that goes away. Now, they didn't understand why that worked. They thought that it's a purification. Well, it kills the stuff that the bug or the bug that is going to get you. But you didn't understand why, and yet it worked. And so it's interesting to see some of the things that they thought would work. And some of it worked great, but they didn't know why. Like the, you know, the tight, the tight uh, mask and tight uh, hat to keep the bad air out, you know, keeps the fleas out, and yes. I'm not so sure that having suet on your, on your clothes is good for keeping the fleas away from your robe. But and I couldn't figure out exactly what they did to the robe at the end of the day. I mean, did they just? I mean, did they set it in the living room and pick it up again the next day? I got the impression from something that one person wrote that they actually like burned the robes at the end of each time that they would go and do stuff, so that they went through a lot of textiles, I suppose, at that time. It's not like you had the you know paper smocks that you can get at the at the hospital now, but. It's just intense stuff. But you can see why everybody's just like, I don't know what to do. And it was, and it was, uh, and they didn't understand why it was, it wasn't just contact to contact. I mean, it wasn't just like, well, Wendy had it, and then Wendy was around Donna, and Donna got it, and Donna was around Ben, and Ben got it. Because it was also stuff that Wendy owned got bought after she died by Bill, and Bill got it. Oh, gosh, 
apparently that bad air just lingers. And I don't know what. And so people would burn whole whole uh, houses, whole villages. If they, if they said 90% of this village is dead with plague, it's a write-off. It just burned the whole thing down. Because I just I don't know what. And I, again, that worked. And because you sit there and you go, yeah, there's a whole flea infestation that has totally taken over this town. And now that's gone. It actually works. There's a, there's a movie that came out uh, called The Last Valley. And it was interesting because um, Omar Sharif plays a German. Go figure. I love that. Um, but Omar Sharif uh, stumbles onto this valley, The Last Valley. It's based on, I think, a James Clavell book. Anyway, The Last Valley in Europe, untouched by either the plague or the Hundred Years' War. It's like, whoa, how did these guys, how did these guys make it? And a bunch of soldiers led by Michael Caine, also playing a German. Go figure. Um, Find the valley also, and they're going to raid it and loot it and, and rape everybody like they always did in the name of Jesus and things. And then, and then went, wait, this is stupid. We have to winter somewhere. Let's just winter here. And, and this idea of what do you do with this last little pristine bit? But think about that. This is like a post-apocalyptic zombie movie. I mean, everything, everywhere is dying in droves. And you find one pocket untouched by anything, either by war or by pestilence. And you go, I will totally live here. This, this is what I want. Anyway, so since they don't know what's going on, they don't know what started this, they don't know what causes this, they're like, we got to do something. So they got to come up with some ideas. For instance, they recognized, rightly, that the plague seemed to get worse and spread more quickly during the summer and the fall. How come? Harvest, morning. Yeah, it's flea weather. They love that. I mean, everybody's out and about. Uh, the animals are out and about. There's harvest. There's all sorts of things. Yeah, fleas love this. Because um, the rats love this, and it's just it's good, it's good all the way around. But if you don't think it's the fleas, what must it be? If, if you go, well, everybody's got fleas. It can't be the fleas. So what is it? They assume that it's because those, those, those months are warm. And the warmth opens up your pores and lets in the bad air, right? Because everybody knows and when you're warm, your pores open up and you let in more, more warmth. Therefore, we have to make sure that we, we convince people to close their pores. Don't do anything that's going to open up their pores. And so we're going to dissuade people from the medieval practice of regular bathing. In the Middle Ages, people bathed regularly. But in the Renaissance, because they're smarter, people said, ain't no way I'm going to bathe. Because it's going to be warm, and it's going to open up the pores. And I'm going to be susceptible to infestation and infection. Right? If you've ever seen, anybody ever seen the, the miniseries uh, Shogun? Remember that when it came out in the 70s? Oh, if you haven't, rent that. Netflix that. That's a great uh, 540-something minutes of, of your life, but it's, it's good. It's worth it. Um, but there's a great scene early on when, when um, this British um, navigator is in Japan, the first Englishman in Japan. And the Japanese say, you stink. We're going to throw you in a bath. Because the Japanese bathe all the time, right? And this is, this is you know, the early 1600s or late 1500s. And he's just like, no stinking way. And he specifically says, no, I refuse to get in the bath. You'll get foul sick if you get into a bath. I mean, I will wash my hands. I'll splash my face if I start getting kind of zitty. But... There's no way you're going to submerge your whole body in a bath. That's how you get to play. Okay. See, it's an historical movie. Worth watching. So, yes, they said, whatever you do, do not take a bath. Is that going to help? How so? Can't get rid of the fleas. So you get an increase in flea infestation, which actually spreads the plague more, right? God, we just don't know why. I mean, we did the whole bath thing, and that didn't work. Well, we need to do that more. Nobody ever take a bath, ever, in all of Europe. Again, take care of those people. Um, but, you know, Europe's going to smell really bad if there's, in this time of history. I would love to see the Renaissance. Okay. I would never like to live in the Renaissance. I don't want, to, I don't want any part of me touching any part of the Renaissance because I would have to, there's no scrubbing that would make me clean enough after that. But I'd love to see it. I'd love to be just a ghost walking through the Renaissance and seeing all this stuff happen. I just don't want to come any, any 
in contact with him. Now, another way of looking at this, there's a new pope named Clement VI who says, I'm going to talk to astrologers because maybe they can tell us what's going on. Way to go, way to go, pope. So they explain that it's, it's probably due to the conjunction of Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars in 1341. There was a strange conjunction, and that's what caused the plague in 1347. I don't know why. But he bought into it. He's like, yep, that must be it. On the plus side, that led him to decry the violence that everybody had been doing against the Jews. Everybody had been saying the Jews were responsible for this. Local clergy were telling people to burn Jews at the stake, um, confiscate their property, all this kind of stuff, because obviously the Jews killed Jesus. And this is God's judgment against all of us, because I don't know exactly how that, but they killed Jesus, go kill them all, and take their stuff. Plus, the Jews don't seem to be getting the plague very much. Because they bathed, and they kept to themselves. Nobody wanted to hang out with the Jews, and they weren't allowed in the churches with everybody else. So these cleanliness-obsessed Jews who were in their own pocketed communities didn't get the plague. And everybody's just like, oh, the plague likes them. Kill them all! Kill them all! And the Pope said, stop, 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 stop. That's wrong. It has nothing to do with the Jews. It's the conjunction of Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars, right? Okay, it does, doesn't it? He also agreed, though, that there must be some sort of spiritual component to this. You know, something about that conjunction, God is using that to point out something. So he encouraged rounding up and trying witches and heretics by the Inquisition. We've really got to step up this Inquisition. We've got to kill more people. This is important. This is important to save their souls and to save Europe. We've got to do something. And we've got to kill their, their familiars, cats. Because, as we all know, witches use cats, right? They talk to, to the devil through their cats. So we've got to round up all their cats and kill them. Which is okay, because Pope Gregory had already declared the cats were diabolical back in about 100 years ago. So, so cats are evil. We need to get rid of all the cats. Is that going to help? Yeah. No, it makes sense. It does get rid of the fleas on the cats, but it leaves more rats, who are the ones who are carrying the fleas in the first place, because these are Asian rat fleas, right? And if you don't have cats to get rid of the rats, you have more rats, which spreads the plague more. Man, we are telling people to not bathe, we're getting rid of all those cats, and we're still getting more plague. You know, technically, we're making more plague. No, 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 we're still getting more plague. We've got to step up our efforts. There's got to be something else. What else are we going to do? We'll bleed people. We've been doing that for a while. We need to cut them open. By the way, you notice, you notice the little, little black fingertips there? Because this person has plague. And so we're trying desperately to get the plague out of them. They've got to bleed them. And this is usually carried out by a doctor or a barber using a knife or a leech you know, to, to get the blood out of them. Now, I say barber, um, and I should stop here. Barbers are the surgeons of their day, right? Doctors are people that give you medicines. Barbers are the people who cut on you. The yeah, they're the ones who are the experts in anything good that you do to the human body using a knife. They still cut hair too? Yep. Actually, and it's weird because we sit there and go, the barber is my surgeon. That's just bizarre. But it makes sense if you think about that from their perspective. Anything where you want another human being walking up to you with a sharp knife, that's a barber. He's going to cut your hair. He's going to... Do the bloodletting. If you need some surgery, you, you, you call for the barber. That's what he does. They like extract teeth too, or no? Okay. Anything that you need a human being to do with a knife to you, you go to the barber. It's weird, but it makes sense if you think about it from their perspective. Pardon me? It does. In fact, their shops are marked with a very noticeable symbol because of that. What is it? The red and white star barber pole, right? Red for the blood that you shed when you go to the barber, and white for the bandages you wear on the way home. That's what that means. It's seriously, seriously, literally what that means, because you'd have your arms swaddled in bandages. That's what the barber pole is. That's what it was for. Now, if you sit there and go, this, when, I, when I was reading about this, I was thinking, why do we have red, white, and blue barber poles? Pardon me? But we're American. Although the British flag, I'm just talking about, you know, Red, white, blue, the United States, you go, you do realize it's the exact same 
red, white, and blue that's in the British flag. I mean, it's not even like, like the French have red, white, and blue, but it's a different kind of blue. No, we got the same stinking blue that the British do, right? British law later split barbers and surgeons into two different groups. The barbers had blue and white poles. The surgeons had red and white poles. And so here in America, we just stuck them both together because we didn't understand what the law was. So any really, really, anytime you see this, just think stupid. <laughs> this, this is the classic symbol of America. You sit there and you go, you did it that way because you have no idea what you're doing, right? Yeah, I thought it was cool because I saw some blue, some red, whatever, so it's just red and blue. You realize that meant something. What? Never mind. Anyway, but that's the deal. So this does not mean that they will both cut your hair and your arm. In America, that's not what that means. But now you understand why they're barbed. <coughs> anyway, okay. So the idea, the reason that they're doing all this bloodletting is to try to balance the bodily fluids. Because you have fluids in your body that need to be balanced for you to be healthy. In fact, there's four of them. They're called humors. After the Latin word humor, uh, meaning moisture, which is why we get words like humid coming from this sort of thing. So you have these four humors in your blood, and you have to keep them balanced, not just blood, sorry, in your body. You have to keep them balanced to stay healthy. You've got yellow bile, you've got black bile, blood, and phlegm. Phlegm. Which is a horrible word. It, it, nobody likes that word phlegm, and it's got whole letters that you don't even pronounce. So it's just wrong all the way around. Anyway, so you've got these four fluids going on in your body, and they have to be done in specific ratios for you to be a healthy person. And not just physically, but emotionally healthy person. If you get your humors out of balance, you're not going to be an emotionally healthy person, which is why you need to be of a good humor. If you are a good humor, then you're a healthy person. So when they say something, oh, you're in a good humor today, obviously your, your humors are balanced. That's where we get that. If something is humorous, that is something that makes you feel good. So all the stuff that we talked about with humor today, you know, technically it's all pointing back to this. So anyway, if you have too much bile, yellow bile, if you have too much bile from the, made from the liver, you're said to be choleric um, or, or easily angered. From the Greek word chloe, meaning greenish, because it's that greenish, yellowish bile stuff, which is why, uh, oh, and, and this is seen as a predominantly male condition. Males, in particular, tend to get too much bile. This is why males can be aggressive and can be obnoxious sometimes. And it's not a healthy thing. It's a bad thing. you got too much bile. We probably ought to bleed you a little bit. This is why diseases like cholera are named diseases like cholera. Because originally they thought it was a bile disease. Left you choleric. All right. Too much black bile from the spleen makes you melancholic. Or black bile -y. Melon meaning black. Wow. Melancholic, you've got too much black bile. That leaves you sad and despondent, you know, like a woman. This is a negative womanly thing. Oh, guys can do that too, especially if they're effeminate. Girls can, can get choleric, especially if they're kind of butch. But basically, this is a male thing, and this, and this is a female thing. Oh, tell me that that is not still technically the stereotype that people have. Men can get all gruff and tumbling, women can get all sad. And one, nobody ever says one An abundance of phlegm, which comes from the brain, made people phlegmatic or peaceful and serene. This is a good thing, and this is a positive feminine thing. When women are calm, serene, as they should be, that's what, because they get that abundance of phlegm. I have an abundance of phlegm right now. <laughs> I do not feel peaceful and serene. <laughs> In fact, I'm feeling a little choleric. <laughs> now, if you have an abundance of, what's the last one? What's the last? I said there's yellow bile, black bile, um, phlegm, and if you have an abundance of blood, then you're said to be sanguine, which means bloody. Sanguine, or courageous and carefree. I'm excited. I'm energetic. I've got a lot of blood. My blood is coursing, and this is seen as a positive male condition. It's the way males should be. Courageous, outward, outgoing, extroverted. Red-blooded male. A red-blooded male. That's exactly right. Now, it's interesting because we still do use some of these words. Even phlegmatic, technically, we never don't you tend to use that in, in, in 
common conversation. But you ever talk about people being melancholy or feeling melancholy? Every once in a while, if somebody's feeling particularly William F. Buckley-ish, they'll, they'll, they'll use words like sanguine, you know, being, you know, energetic, uh, happy, carefree. No. Well, special shiny nickel for you because most of the, even though the science behind it has been refuted, most of uh, uh, personality scales used by psychology today use this. These are the basic categories. Not just in Christian circles, though you're right, there was. Not just in Christian circles, but in general. This is the way most personality tests. Oh, no, they won't use terms like colored, melancholic, phlegmatic, cycle. Some will. Sometimes they'll go lion, dog, monkey, and. I don't know. I mean, they'll use different. They'll use different images for this. But there will be the um, there will be the emotionally unstable introvert. This is the person who's going to go climb up a water tower and shoot people at some point. They're just going to they're just going to crumple at some point. You've got the introverted but emotionally stable person. This is the reliable person. This is the person that you can trust to be calm in a group. You've got the emotionally unstable collared person. They're not passive-aggressive. They're not going to climb the water tower. They're just going to punch you in the face. This is the guy that's going to be impulsive in things, but they're probably going to be one of the ones that get things done. But what you really want as, as, as a leader is someone who's sanguine. They're outgoing. They're emotionally stable. They're, they're, they're uh, relaxed in themselves, and they'll get things done, and they're extroverted and things. So you'll talk about extrovert, introvert, unstable, stable, and you want to see yourself in different quadrants or see how you move. Most personality scales will use some version of this. Now you know where this is coming from. It's because you've got a lot of blood, this person's got a lot of phlegm, this person's got black bile, and this person's got bile bile. Yellow bile, right? And now you know the rest of the story. It doesn't make sense, but they're trying to figure this out, right? They're trying so hard to figure out what's going on. In fact, in a desperate attempt, one last thing, he's trying anything. Late in the game, Pope Urban V outlawed a certain style of shoes. It's like, maybe this will stop the plague. Because they're trying everything else, right? Because it can't be the fleas. Everybody's got fleas. So what is it? We've told people not to bathe. We've killed all the cats. We don't know what to do. Shoes. Get rid of the stinking shoes. What style of shoes? Pointy plains. Elf shoes. This. We must get rid of the elf shoes. They're also called Krakow's because they're originally from Krakow, Poland. That makes sense, doesn't it? If we just stop the shoes, you've seen pointy shoes in, in pictures from Renaissance, haven't you? The people that have the shoes that point out forever and you go, what? Right? I don't know why you got this. Why you? I, you know, at one point I, I, I thought it was because in, in armor, you've seen sometimes with uh, the, uh, the, the foot section of armor, they'll come to a point. And at first I thought, oh, you know, that's so that you can spike somebody when you're fighting them. And this is based on that. No, it's the other way around. These came first, and armorers went, you know, if you made that out of metal, you can spike people when you fight them. Ooh, good thinking. So these came first. So what's the point of these things? Why Why would you ever... What? <laughs> Didn't even mean to. <sighs> anyway, um, why would you come up with these ridiculous-looking shoes? They look cool. Yeah! <laughs> to show off your penis. What? That's what this is for. The idea behind this was supposed to imply the size of your manhood. This is what this was for. Obviously it didn't, but that's what it's for. If you look at some of these, I mean, they'll put bells on the ends of them, they'll do all sorts of different things. If you look, you will knock yourself out. You'll find that some people, some of them actually sculpted their planes to look like that, painted them to look like that. The whole idea was to say, I'm impressive. So is this where the myth of big feet? <laughs> this is exactly where the myth of big feet came from. This idea that if you have big feet, you must have big male hood. So anyway, that's the idea. And the Pope says, well, that's just tacky. That's just wrong. That's bad. That's unseemly. And it's, it's basically spiritually asking for trouble. I mean, you are, you are being terribly unseemly 
God is going to get you for that. So he makes an excommunication offense. If you wear Kulangs or Krakows in public, you're going to be excommunicated from the Catholic Church. Burn in hell for wearing these shoes. Well, yeah, but you can't wear them in public if you're a commoner. You're a commoner? Well, you don't want to offend the nobles. How else is the king going to show you how big his penis is? I'm not kidding. And I know this is crass, but this is the Renaissance. Um, I'm not kidding. The argument was, and I'm, seriously, the argument was, how else is the king going to show you how the size of his penis? You wouldn't want him to, to drop down his pants. How tacky are you? You know, okay, why is it a given that he must show me what size? How on earth? Do you have to have a big penis to rule? Is that the deal? <laughs> it is so incredibly tacky. It was so incredibly tacky to research this. But you sit there and just go, good lord, this argument of, well, how else is it? Well, and, and I'm the Pope. I can't offend my nobles. So if you're a commoner, and surely that will cover, that will just cover a little. It took Charles the Fourth, the Fifth, otherwise called Charles the Wise, the King of France, to go. Okay, nobody gets to wear these. If it's tacky for anybody, it's tacky for everybody. Nobody gets to wear these. I like Charles. I actually like Charles the Fifth. He's one of these kings that comes off looking pretty good in history. Like, oh, Charles, thank you, because they're ridiculous looking anyway. But the next time you see a picture with those pointy toed people, you're gonna just look at that and go. You're gonna see like pointy toed people and people with big, with big wigs. You're just gonna go. Oh, I don't want to be in that room. I always think jester. I mean, well, yeah, but it's, it's more than that. So, yeah. Elves are the only ones that get to wear those now. <laughs> so anyway, within the span of four years, roughly 50% of the population of Europe is dead. Ironically, not right now! They never got it! I just think it's hysterical. Were they cleaner or something? Or they had the shoes? They had the shoes! <laughs> they rejected them! It was just I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. But anyway, 50% of the population of Europe is dead. Now, technically, that's just an average number, though. Because it's only about 20% of the northern reaches, because it took a while to get there. And, ironically, because the people up north are the descendants of Vikings. And Vikings were known for bathing. Cleanliness, right? And cold. But they, they, they bathed every week. They were famous for bathing. Yeah, between bathing and then the cold killing yeah, so, so uh, and, and, we, and of course, later on, Europeans were like, oh, the Vikings, those dirty, rotten, dusty. You go, no, they were the ones that were clean. They actually had a day called Bath Day. That's what they called Saturday, was Bath Day. Every, every, every week, they'd bathe every Saturday. But 70 to 80 percent of the Mediterranean. Yeah. In addition to that, it's also colder. Exactly, exactly. I mean, they still had livestock. They still got it. But it's nowhere near as much. Nowhere near as much of the flea season. But think about this. 70 to 80% of the people down here dying of plague. Picture for a second, four out of every five people you know dead in the span of four years from bubonic plague. It also shows Milan being free to Yeah, and I'm not sure what that's about. Because I know that eventually, I, I got the impression eventually they got it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there was a big deal about Krakow not getting it. Wasn't Krakow born like a heavily Jew area? Thank you very much. Da da da. Because I'm sitting there going, I don't know what that is, but you're right. It's it's it was a heavy heavily Jewish population. In fact, in fact, I think Milan might have been as well, because they had a lot of the bankers and things. Good thinking. Okay, so four out of five people in four years. Four to five people, not just four out of five people in your town. I mean, four out of five of everybody you know in your country dead out of a really nasty, nasty plague. To put it in perspective, that's upwards of twenty or two hundred million people dead in four years, depending on how you count it up. That's two thirds of the current population of the United States dead from bubonic plague. This is an extinction level event, and this is this is apocalyptic. How do they find places to bury all these people? Oh, um, one of the popes actually consecrated a river and called it holy water so they could just dump the bodies in the river and bury them that way. By the way, that doesn't spread plague. Um, they, they declared whole sections, quarantine, whole villages got burned, and then everybody would just cart the dead bodies to that village and throw it there. It, they created their own Gehennas, you know, where you throw all the bodies and burn them. 
Um, yeah, the uh, different people. Some people refuse to do that um, because they love their families and things, and so they would bury them like in their backyard and stuff, and spread the plague because they're conscientious. I don't want to desecrate my child, my child by throwing them into a burn pit. You know, then you just killed your entire neighborhood by allowing those fleas to continue. I, mean, I, I get it, I get it, but that was one of the big things. Is just like, what do you do with all the bodies? And so again, just like after Justinian's plague, you get a lot of ghost towns in Europe. But this is also where you get, again, the growth of a lot of legends that we're now familiar with. You get all these fleas everywhere sucking everybody's blood. You have all these dead bodies everywhere. You have all these ruins and castles that are burned out. You're going to start getting legends about... Uh, vampires, about werewolves, about uh, people who made a deal with the devil to survive the plague. Um, you'll see people that you, they got the plague. They got the plague. So you know they're going to die, right? I mean, Michael got the plague. I know he's going to die. His whole family, we avoided them. And then six months later, I saw Michael walking around. I swear. I know, I mean, he was dead, right? Because he had the plague. And then he was walking around. The dead rose to infect the living. Because he had the plague, and now he's walking around with the rest of us. So you're going to get a lot of these legends of the dead rising, all sorts of different versions of that throughout Europe. And again, you're going to start getting this, don't go alone into the woods. Don't go into the ruins. Those castles on the hills, those are scary places. The survivors are going to be themselves. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, remember, before this, castles are good things. You flock to castles, right? You see a castle on a hill, that's your fortress. That's a good thing. It's only now that... Those burned-out castles on the hill, those are scary places. You kill 200 million people, two-thirds of the United States. You kill 70 to 80 percent of your population in northern Italy. That's going to change things. It's going to fundamentally change what happens next. So, come back next week and we'll talk about how that changes things in the church and how the Hundred Years of War started playing out a little bit more perfectly. I'm going to take one second, though. I should stop, but I, 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 I want to ask. What do you learn from this? Other than, that, ah, interesting facts. Now I know why fleas. What does that have to do with us today? As Christians, what does this, any of this have to do with us today? What do we learn? It helps us understand some of the things that are going on around us and some of the things we accept ourselves. Uh, I think about Josh, when he was colicky, and he was yet yellow, he was yellow when he came out, they put him under heat lamps, stuff like this, mm -hmm. makes, makes me think, is this the same type of thing, oh, that's what causes the yellow, so that's what we accept, and then he was colicky after that, and so, and so a lot of the things that we accept as truths right now may not be true. Maybe. Basically, we're no different. No, well, and, 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 and we might have... In the dark. We are. Now there might, and, and, and not only just that we're groping around in the dark trying to figure it out, but we do a lot of whistling in the dark, which is an old phrase that means, you, you, you know, whistling past a graveyard, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to think happy thoughts to try not to be scared by this. There's a lot of stuff that we do. When I was a kid, they used to tell us, uh, in the case of a nuclear war, get out of your desk, put a book over your head, and close your eyes, and don't look at the flash. You go, if I'm a school kid, and getting under my desk with a book over my head is going to help because of the possible shrapnel from that nuclear blast, I'm going to die anyway. It was the brightness that Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, if I'm that close, I'm, I'm going to die within a, within a couple of weeks of radiation poisoning. I'm, I'm, I'm toast. But you're not telling them that. When we, and you used to think, well, that was in the 80s. It's not the dark ages. It's the 80s. Or when you first started having problems with, like, um, biological terrorist attacks, and the, and the CDC said, all right, it might be good for you to, uh, in the case of biological terror attack, it might be good for you to, you know, put, uh, put plastic around your doors and windows, you know, just to keep, you go, your house is going to be hermetically sealed? Really? It's not going to work like that. But it makes everybody feel better, right? Everybody goes, oh, at least there's a chance, you know, no, there isn't. Not like that. It's not going to help. Um, Y2K, you know, get some water and, and, and have it on hand and, and some cans of food. You go, if there's a hiccup, sure. If there's many more than a hiccup, that's, that's, that's not going to help you in the long run. But everybody went and did that because it made them feel like they were going to... Same sort of thing. We haven't changed that much. Well, the 
Christianity goes. Uh, so many Christians do pretty much what open others do when they accept a common belief, you know, about things and say, okay, that must be something we need to pursue. And even though it's not in the Word, or, you know, but, it, but it's the right thing to do, but it's based upon maybe something that's not right. Whether that's a pope or a charismatic preacher or or your variant reading of scripture, you sit there and you go, I don't know why this works, but I think it works. I don't know how many people will sit there and go, well, you say there's the, the psychic stuff isn't necessarily from God, but I've seen that work. It must work. And you go, sort of sticking your hand in the fire, but there are better ways of doing that. You know, there's, just because that worked doesn't mean it worked the way you think it works. Um, and you've got to stop and think about why you're doing what you're doing. And does this really honor God? Let's see, we have to have something that is truth, something that we believe in. That gets you through the day. Is truth, and the only thing you have is the word of God. And it's that last part of that sentence that's crucial. Because what this is showing that 500 years ago, 600 years ago, 700 years ago, today, desperate to cling to something. If I just had this, if we just had this, if we just, if we could just get three more families into our church, if we could just, if we could just, if we could just get a really good advertising campaign, if we could, if we could just, you know, Prester John. You know, if we could just get some Christian king, okay, stop. There is one thing that doesn't change. One thing that you can absolutely put your faith into. There are other things that are good to do, but one thing that you have to nail yourself to. And that's the one thing that so many of us say, I don't really get into reading the Bible. I don't really get into prayer. I mean, it's not really my thing. But I will roll up my sleeves and I'll work on this project. And you go, the one thing that will actually get you through is being tethered to God's truth through prayer, through his word. And ironically, that's the one thing you're not doing. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much. I thank you that no matter what we're going through, no matter how chaotic the moments in our lives seem, we know that you don't change. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We pray, Lord, help us to cling to you, not to superstitions, not to whatever hazmat suits we can come up with, even if they work. We pray, Lord, Help us to use wisdom, to use the things that work, but to cling to you, to find our truth and our salvation and our strength and our stability in you. We pray, Lord, help us to share that with all those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. I had a quick announcement. Amy mentioned that um, this morning, Kimberly Kelly, who's a pastor in Chicago, she's going to be doing a 